Well, my name is Adam. I'm part of the team here, and it's great to be with you today. I want to begin by asking you, who is the greatest or worst villain of all time? Who is the, the, the greatest villain of all time? Now, maybe for you, some historical figures come to mind. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, Robert Mugabe. Maybe some fictional characters come to mind. Darth Vader, Joker from Batman, Professor Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes, Voldemort, Hannibal Lecter, maybe Hans Gruber from John McClane's Mortal Enemy in the Die Hard series. Maybe for you, though, there are other faces that come to your mind. Maybe it's someone who has hurt you deeply. Someone who has betrayed you, mistreated you, lied about you, slandered you, opposed you. The reality is, as we go through life in this world, we will face conflict with others. We will be opposed by others. Not everyone is going to like us. Not everyone is going to treat us well. We will have some enemies. And the question that's before us today is how should we respond to our enemies? How should we treat those who mistreat us? Now, let's be honest, there is a very natural answer to this question. How should we treat our enemies? The same way they've treated us. We should get even with them. We should get back at them. We should get revenge on them. This is what comes naturally, isn't it? This is what we see happening all around us. In fact, the, the musical Hamilton is uh, playing at the QPAC Theatre at the moment. Without wanting to spoil the story for anyone, it's about the uh, life of the US founding father, Alexander Hamilton. And a big part of his life was his long-running feud with his one-time friend and political rival, Aaron Burr. And the jealousy and the rivalry between these two men, it ultimately culminates in one of them losing their lives. And sadly, this is what is normal in our world. Jealousy, bitterness, rivalry, revenge. And this is why Jesus' words in Matthew chapter five are so shocking to us. This is why Jesus' words land so heavily on us. Because into our angry, divided, vengeful world, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you haven't been around, we are in a sermon series at the moment where we're kind of working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon which Jesus gives to his followers, which is all about what it means to follow him. And what Jesus has been talking about for the last few weeks is what it means to follow him from the heart what it means to obey God's law from the heart. And so far, we've seen Jesus talk about radical devotion to God's word. He's talked about radical self-control. Remember uh, when we talked about anger? He's talked about radical purity. Last week, he talked about radical integrity with our speech and with our words. 
And today, Jesus talks about radical love. Love, not just for those who love us, but love even for those who hate us. Now, let me be very honest. These words are incredibly challenging. These are some of the most challenging verses in the Bible. In fact, you might be thinking, this is crazy. If I was to live this way, I would be a doormat. Other people would walk all over me. They would take advantage of me. And it's true that these verses that we're looking at today, they can be misunderstood and misapplied. And we're going to do our best not to do that today. But it's also true that if we were to live out this vision faithfully, then we could put on display the light and the love of Jesus. We could show others the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to walk through this passage together. I don't have any fancy headings for you today that rhyme or start with the same letter or anything like that. We're just going to walk through the passage together and we're going to explain it and apply it as we go. So put your seatbelt on. Here's how Jesus begins, verse 38. He says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, we need to remember what Jesus is doing here. Remember, he is correcting the teaching of the religious leaders in his day. He is correcting their misinterpretation of God's law. And the law that Jesus is quoting here is found in Exodus 21. And this particular law was given for a very good reason. It was given to stop the escalation of revenge. It was given to stop blood feuds from developing. Think about it this way. Imagine someone punches my brother in the face. So I go and cut the person that did it. I cut their hand off. They come and cut my head off. Now my family wants to kill their whole family and on and on it goes and just gets worse and worse. See, the law was given to put a stop to that. It was given to say that compensation for a wrong, it should be of the same kind and to the same degree. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But the law had become distorted and twisted. The religious leaders had begun to use it to justify them getting personal revenge, to demand that they kind of get what they were owed. It led to them demanding their rights. Now, I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. I mean, this is the air that we breathe, isn't it? These are my rights. This is what I'm owed. It's me first. And this is why Jesus' words are so shocking to us. Look what he says, verse 38 and 39. You've heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, this is what Jesus says to us, do not resist an evil person. Now again, let let me stop right there because what does Jesus even mean? Do not resist an evil person. Really? Never? What about police? It's literally their job to resist evil. What about a, a soldier? What about if you're walking home one day and someone mugs you? They start punching you. Are, are you supposed to stand there and say, swing harder, brother? Here's my car keys. Of course, the answer is no. There are occasions when we are to resist evil. Jesus is not saying that we should never, ever resist evil. I mean, there will be times when a Christian police officer may be required to use force. 
There'll be times when a Christian soldier may be required to, to fight in battle. And all of us as Christian citizens should be ready to step in when we see others being mistreated. Jesus is not saying we should never ever resist evil. Instead, he's talking about our personal relationships. He's saying that when others insult us or mistreat us, he wants us to respond to that in a certain type of way. He wants us to not retaliate, to not get revenge, to not take matters into our own hands. And to illustrate what he's saying, Jesus goes on to give four different examples, four examples of where we lose something and what he wants our response to be. The first example is a loss of pride. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now to be slapped on the face is incredibly insulting. I mean, this is why we have the saying, it was a slap in the face. We mean it was insulting, it was offensive, it was derogatory. And this was especially true in Jesus' day. In fact, the backhanded slap on the right cheek, which is what Jesus is talking about here, it was one of the most offensive things that you could do to another person. In fact, if someone did that to you, you could take them to court. You, you could, in a sense, sue them for defamation. But Jesus says to his followers, if someone insults you, if someone belittles you, turn to them the other cheek also. In other words, if someone insults you, let them. Don't retaliate. Don't return the insult. Don't stoke the fire with your response. Be prepared to take the insult. Now you might be thinking, doesn't this make me weak? Doesn't this make me a pushover? Won't other people think that I'm a doormat? And the truth is they might. But I would argue that true strength is not the ability to return an insult with an insult. True strength is the ability to be insulted and not insult back. To be ridiculed and not return serve. And the reason we can do this is because of what we were saying just a moment ago. Because our worth is not in anything other than Christ. It's because what others say to us and what others say about us, it's not the deepest thing that matters to us. It's what Christ says to us and it's what Christ says about us. And when you know that you have his acceptance, it means the acceptance or the rejection of others, it's not as crushing or devastating to you. Now, let me be clear before we move on. Jesus is not saying in this verse that if you are being abused, if you are a victim of violence, whether at home or at work or at school, that you just kind of need to put up with that abuse. Jesus is not saying that we can't ever stand up for ourselves. He's not saying that we shouldn't take appropriate action in these instances. He's saying, his main point is that we should not take revenge. We should not retaliate. And he goes on to make the, the same point in the second example that he gives. Firstly, he talks about a loss of pride. Then he talks about a loss of possessions. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, if, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
Jesus is saying, if someone literally tries to take the shirt off your back, don't stop them. In fact, give them your coat as well. Now, this might not sound like a huge deal to us. After all, most of us have multiple coats in our closets. But in Jesus' day, this was a huge deal. Not only did most people only have one coat, they not only used their coat for for kind of wearing during the day, they also used it as a blanket to keep warm at night. It was a highly prized possession. And, And Jesus says, be willing to give it up. Be willing to hand it over. Friends, this is so, so, so challenging. I mean, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, even if your legal rights are infringed, even if someone takes your property or your possessions, don't take revenge, don't demand your rights, be willing to lay your rights down. Again, Jesus is not saying that we just kind of let people walk all over us, but he is saying that we must be willing to give things up and to let things go for the sake of the gospel. You know, there's an example of this in the early church, that the church in the ancient city of Corinth was a total mess. There was even believers suing other believers. And here's what Paul writes to this church, the Apostle Paul. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul is saying the attitude of believers is to, I would would rather be wronged, I would rather be cheated than to bring disrepute onto the name of Jesus. It's hard to hear, isn't it? And it's even harder to do. We're not used to this. We don't like this. But this is the way of Jesus. And here's the thing, Jesus didn't hide this in the fine print. Do you remember on an occasion there was people that wanted to follow Jesus and do you remember what he said to them? Matthew 16, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. The way of Jesus is the way of self-denial. It's not demanding your rights, it's being willing to lay your rights down. So the first example Jesus gives is a loss of pride. The second is a loss of possessions. And the third is a loss of time. Look at verse 41. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day, they were under the thumb of the Romans. Roman soldiers could legally force civilians to help them out in some way to give them food, to carry their luggage for a certain distance. I mean, you might be on your way to work. You might be on your way to worship. You might even be on the way to your wedding. And Roman soldiers could force you to help them out. And you can imagine that the Jews hated this practice. Wouldn't you? I would. But Jesus says, don't be grumble. Don't grumble. Don't be vengeful. In fact, offer to do even more. Oh, you want me to carry this one more? I can do it too. It's fine. See, Jesus is driving his point home. When others mistreat us, don't hit back, don't take revenge, bear the insult. Don't demand your rights, be willing to lay them down. And don't just do what is asked, but be willing to do even more. 
The fourth example Jesus gives, we've seen a loss of pride, we've seen a loss of possessions, we've seen a, a, a loss of time, and the fourth example Jesus gives is a loss of money. Look at verse 42. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, again, Jesus is not kind of woodenly saying that we must give to every single person that ever asks us for any amount of money. He's not saying that we must give to every single beggar in the, in the Brisbane CBD. We must give to every single cause that we see when we scroll through social media. After all, the Bible also talks about the importance of saving. It also talks about the importance of providing for your family. Jesus is not saying that we need to give to every outstretched hand, but he is calling us to radical generosity. He is saying we should give to some of those outstretched hands as much as we're able. We should give to some of those causes that we see as much as we're able. He is calling on us to be prepared to give more than is comfortable and more than is common. He's calling us to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others. And this is really the point of all the examples that Jesus gives. He's telling us that we're to think about others, to do good to others. And here's the kicker, even when they don't deserve it. When someone is rude, Jesus is saying, respond with kindness. When someone insults you, return them with a compliment. When someone is harsh with you, be gentle with them. When someone is condescending towards you, be encouraging. And when someone is stingy with you, be generous with them. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Here's the way one man, uh, Alfred Plumer, puts it. And listen to this carefully. He says, to return evil for good is devilish. Now, if someone does some, something good to you and you kind of return with, with doing harm to them, it's devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And this is what Jesus is calling us to as his followers. Easy, right? Now, you might think that Jesus would kind of end it there. It's kind of challenging enough, isn't it? But he takes it even deeper. He goes even further. He says, not only are we to kind of not to retaliate, not only are we to return good for evil, he says, we are even to love our enemies. Look at verses 43 to 44. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, again, Jesus is correcting the view of the Old Testament of the religious leaders. And he quotes here from the Old Testament, love your neighbor, it comes directly from Leviticus 19. But that second part of the phrase, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that is found nowhere in the Old Testament. The religious leaders just kind of added it in because they assumed to love your neighbor means to love only your neighbor. And so it must be okay to hate everybody else. And Jesus says, no, I tell you, love your enemies. The ancient historian uh, John Dixon, he says, I regard these words as the most sublime ethical teaching ever given. He says there is nothing else like this in ancient history. But they're challenging words, aren't they? I mean, why does Jesus want us to love our enemies? Well, he goes on to tell us in the next few verses, that he gives us two reasons. The first in verse 45 is when we love our enemies, 
It makes us like our Father in heaven. I won't read verse 45, but you can see there on the screen that Jesus says, God causes the rain to fall both on the Christian and the non-Christian. You know, when it rains, it doesn't just fall on top of the, the Christian's house. It falls on everybody. When the sun rises in the morning, it doesn't just shine on, down on the churches. It shines on everybody. And this is what theologians call God's common grace. It's God's love and care for all people, whether they love him or not. And so when we love those who don't love us, we're acting a bit like a chip off the old block. We're resembling our Father in heaven. We're demonstrating the family trait. This is the first reason we're to love our enemies because it makes us like our Father in heaven. The second reason Jesus gives is in verses 46 to 47. And he says it makes us stand out in the world. Again, I won't read the verses, but Jesus is basically saying everyone loves those who love them. I mean, those people that send me nice, encouraging emails on a Monday morning, I love them. But those who don't love us, for us to love them, that's not common. That's not ordinary. And it will make you stand out. And so here's the question. Does it? Does our love for our enemies make us stand out in the world? Does it make me stand out? Does it make you stand out? What about us as a church? Does our love for our enemies make us stand out in the world? Let me give you an example of, of what I think this might look like. I was in Sydney last week for a leadership conference. And as part of it, I visited a church uh, that's in the suburb of uh, Surrey Hills. Now, Surrey Hills is an inner city suburb and it's right next to Darlinghurst. And together, these kind of two suburbs are like the unofficial gay capital of Sydney. And you might not know this, but the Mardi Gras were on in Sydney last weekend. And the Mardi Gras parade actually goes right through the suburb of Surrey Hills. And it actually goes right past this church, which is reformed, evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching. They believe that marriage is a lifelong union between one man and one woman. Now, what would you do if you were this church? What would it look like to love your enemies? Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that gay people are the enemies of the church, but it's often assumed that this is the case. These two groups are often pitted against one another. And so what would you do if you were this church? Would you kind of shut your doors and turn off your lights, batten down the hatches? Well, what this church does is, is during the parade, they open their doors, they turn on the lights... They cook pancakes and they cook sausages and they invite people to come in. Whether it's just to have something to eat or whether it's just to find a quiet space away from the mania or, or whether it's just to have a conversation. And there's a sign on the, the door of this church as people come in, it says this. It says, surprised to see a church open on the night of Mardi Gras. We think you'd be more surprised by what Jesus has to offer. And I think this is what Jesus is talking about. They're opening their, their doors to those that everyone assumes they would hate. They're showing them love. They're having conversations. They're sharing Jesus with them. Now, let me be very clear. Love does not mean we agree with someone. Love does not mean we validate all of their views. Love does not mean that we compromise on what we believe. Love doesn't even mean that we don't draw boundaries 
around things like church membership and church leadership and so on. But love does mean that we're willing to engage. It means that we treat other people as image bearers of God. It means that we don't demonize or despise them, but we treat them with respect and dignity. And if this example perhaps makes you feel uncomfortable, I actually think that might be a good thing. Because for us to hear this command from Jesus to love our enemies and to not be challenged, to not be stretched, to not be made to feel a little bit uncomfortable, it might mean that we're not really listening to Jesus. Because to love your enemies is not neat, it's not easy, and it's not simple. But it's what Jesus calls us to do. Now, maybe when you think about enemies in your life, you don't think about other groups, you think about an individual someone that has hurt you deeply. They've caused significant pain and distress in your life. And the thought of loving them is really hard to accept. And this is why I think Jesus gives the action point that he does. Because he doesn't say, love your enemies and be best friends with those who persecute you. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, it might be the only thing that we can do is to pray for the person that we have in mind. And assuming that we're genuinely praying for them, not, Lord, please make them crash their car, but genuinely praying for them, even if it's just asking the Holy Spirit just to translate our groaning. Well, as we do that, it's going to make it harder and harder to hate them. Because as our prayers go up to God, our heart goes out to them. And this is what God wants from us, to live with great love. Love for him, first and foremost. Love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And even love for our enemies. And this is the context that helps us to understand that the final verse of the passage, verse 48, when Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What a bomb to drop right at the end. I mean, you, you thought loving your enemies is hard. Don't worry about that. Just be perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, I think, if this is the standard, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm out. And, and indeed, some people have used this verse to kind of teach that we can and we must attain sinless perfection in this life. But it's not true, and it's not what Jesus means here. I mean, we could just kind of turn to uh, 1 John, he who says he is without sin um, does not have the truth in him. That's not exactly how the first goes, but it's dropped out of my head. Or even just think about the Sermon on the Mount itself. How did Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the perfect, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way into God's family, the way into God's kingdom, it's not perfection, it's poverty. It's recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy, that you have nothing before God. And a few verses later, Jesus will go on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, this pursuit of righteousness is a lifelong, ongoing pursuit. And then in the next chapter, Jesus will teach us to constantly pray, Father, forgive us our debts. He'll recognize that there is this kind of ongoing need for forgiveness. 
And so Jesus is not saying that we can and we must achieve sinless perfection. So what is he saying? What does he mean? Well, the word perfect here is the Greek word teleos. It means mature or complete or whole. For example, Hebrews 5 verse 14 says solid food is for the mature. It's the same word, Greek word teleos. And so when we think about what Jesus has just said about loving our enemies, he seems to be saying that to be perfect like God is perfect. It means to love like God loves. It means to have a whole, complete, mature love. A love that is not just for those who are lovely and lovable, but a love that is even for our enemies. Because friends, here's the truth. Isn't this how God has loved us? You know, Romans 5 says that we were enemies of God, that we'd rejected God, that we turned our backs on God. But God, in his great love, turned towards us in Christ. He came near to us in Christ. And this is why Romans 5 goes on to say that we have been reconciled to God through the death of his son. This is what Christ has done for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, he died for us. At the cost of his life, his blood and his body, he purchased us. And during his trial and crucifixion, Jesus was slapped on the cheek. He was beaten and mocked and insulted. He was forced to carry his cross by the Roman soldiers. He literally had the coat ripped off his back. He had nails driven through his hands and his feet. And he did it for you and for me. So that we who were enemies of God might become children of God. And this means the way that we treat our enemies, it is evidence as to whether we truly understand the gospel. Because when you recognize that God loved you when you didn't deserve it, it frees you to love others that don't deserve it. When you comprehend how much you've been forgiven, it compels you to forgive others. When you understand that at your very worst, God gave you his very best, it changes you from the inside out. And it leads you down the path of radical, costly enemy love, which is at the very heart of the gospel. See, the way that we're going to show an angry, divided, outrage-addicted world the glory and the goodness of Jesus is through radical, costly enemy love. It's not easy, it's not simple, it's not neat, but it's utterly compelling. And I want to close with this. I was reminded this story this week uh, about the story of Botham Jean. Now, Botham was a 26-year-old accountant living in Dallas in the United States. And one evening in 2018, he was at home in his apartment. He was sitting on the couch watching TV. When an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger, she finished her shift and she walked into Botham's apartment. She mistakenly thought that it was her own apartment in the same complex. And when she saw a stranger sitting on what she thought was her couch, she pulled out her weapon and she shot Botham. And tragically, Botham died and Amber was charged. 
Now at her trial, after Amber was convicted, there was an opportunity for family members to, to offer a victim impact statement. Basically to share with the convicted person exactly how they feel. And the convicted person just has to sit there and listen to it. Well, Botham's younger brother, Brant, who was just 18 years old, he decided on the spur of the moment to offer a statement. And this is what he said. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do and the best would be give your life to Christ I'm not going to say anything else I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do again I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. That type of love is not human, it's divine. Can't be worked up from within, can only come down from above, can only be found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for us, the enemies of God, so that we might become children of God. And what would happen if together we pursued this kind of radical, costly enemy love. Let's find out together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great love that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. This love that we have not earned and that we do not deserve. 
Lord, help it to so deeply change us and transform us from the inside out so that we might become people and a church that is able not just to love the lovely, to love the lovable, to love those who love us, but to love even our enemies. As Lord, maybe some of us today, we need to just to commit to start praying for someone. That person on our heart, that person in our mind, just to begin to, to bring them before you. Lord, maybe others of us need to receive your love for the first time, to put our trust in Christ. But whatever our response might be, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to take that step. Help us to live in light of your love so that we might become people of love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.